One of the great things about travelling in America, says he pompously, is that about every airport shop, every petrol station, every corner shop, every 7-Eleven has a Christian section. There's a little stall there and you can get your Christian book. And uh, recently as I was going through there, there was one book that seemed to be just right at the front of all these little Christian sections. It was this one. Your Best Life Now. Here it was, and uh, I've got a copy here. In fact, I've got to tell you, there are some tooth marks in it. It was so difficult to read, but anyway, there we go. But, but this is what uh, 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 the, the author said. God wants this to be the best time of your life. The central theme of the opening chapters is happy, successful, fulfilling individuals have learned how to live their best life now. And so we're told... As you put the principles found in these pages to work today, you'll begin living your best life now. And can I say that is absolutely true if you are not a Christian. This is it. This life is it. So you better get the book because your next life is going to be infinitely worse than this one. I say again, if you're not a Christian, thank you for coming. But this is your best life now because the world to come after Judgment Day will be a place where we pay for our sins ourselves in hell. If Jesus had not paid for them on Good Friday, we will pay ourselves. So with tears, I must warn you that that, uh, that will be your worst life. For you will there be in a place of no hope, no satisfaction, no meaning, no joy, no future, and no relief from eternal suffering. That is the worst possible life. And there is only one Jesus. He came to die for us to save us from this. This is why Christians take this week with infinite seriousness. And when I say infinite, I mean infinite. Jesus warns us again and again of a place called hell. He says it's a place of darkness, of weeping. Matthew 8, verse 12, lostness and flames of fire, Mark 9, verse 48. I say this to you with tears. So if you aren't a Christian, welcome, but this is your best life now, because the next life in hell will be terrible. And can I say to you again, therefore, please do come to the Good Friday service and hear Charlie preach and talk about what happened when Jesus died. Please come to the Easter services, to the Resurrection Revolution event. Actually, even come to the sports quiz. But just come. Come and listen more about to, uh, 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 to what Jesus did. And again, can I say, if this is true, then please take what I say with infinite seriousness. But of course, if uh, you are a Christian, if you know your sins have been forgiven and you've come to embrace Jesus Christ as Lord, then this is not even close to your best life. You can't even comprehend what your best life looks like because 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9 promises, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. You can't even conceive of how good it will be. Take the best moment you've ever had in your life and multiply it by infinity and you're maybe inching there. And I want to categorically say to you that your best life as a Christian begins when this life ends. Your best life as a Christian begins when this life ends. So in this world, contrary to what many prosperity preachers preach, 
The Lord is not promising us here and now a full, happy, rich, satisfying, trouble-free life of health, wealth and success. Oh, he does promise that, absolutely. He absolutely promises a full, rich, satisfying, trouble-free life of health, wealth and success, of absolute joy, peace and perfection. But not now. Not now. Not in this life. And if there were any faithful Christians to whom you could not have given this book without it being a terrible cruelty, a terrible cruelty, it would surely have been those to whom whom the Apostle Peter wrote this letter. It was written in the early 60s AD when the Emperor Nero uh, was on the throne. He had been emperor since 54 AD when at the age of 16... He had become ruler of the most powerful empire in the world. Now, I just want to say that um, 16 is not a good age to rule the most powerful empire in the world. Uh, You can be a little immature, a little impetuous. He should have actually been doing his GCSEs and had a Saturday morning job at Tesco's. (laughs) And Nero's reputation was horrific. He was a man whose vanity and lust for power was limitless, and his reign was one of advisors, friends, closest relatives, one by one, falling under suspicion and being brutally executed. As Nero's reign continued, his venom was increasingly turned against the Christians, who found they were not living their best life now. That's what they discovered. And in 64 AD, when a fire destroyed the city of Rome, Rumours spread that Nero was responsible because he had wanted Rome cleared for a huge building project. Nero, in turn, sensing the anger of the Roman mob, claimed the Christians were responsible, that the Christians had brought a curse on the city of Rome because they would not worship Rome's gods. So the fire was the vengeance of Rome's gods. Indeed, Nero claimed that these Christians even fed on the body and blood of others at their feasts, That is how communion was interpreted as cannibalism. And so Christians were arrested, imprisoned, executed, used as torches, and at least 3,000 were thrown to the lions in the Colosseum in Rome. Indeed, Peter the writer would soon himself be crucified upside down. So that is the context of the letter. It was written... As the Roman Empire became more and more violently opposed to the Christian faith, it was written in the shadow of martyrdom. That is the context. And the Christians Peter is writing to have fled the big cities of Rome and Jerusalem. They're in an area around the Mediterranean Black Sea. So the message of Jesus spread out in part because of persecution. In fact, that is the rhythm of the Acts of the Apostles. There's persecution and expansion, persecution and expansion, and God sovereignly opens the door as the message spreads and spreads as Christians run for their lives. Peter is writing to tiny islands of Christian faith surrounded by great oceans of paganism, and I wonder if you can see as we look down at our reading that was so well read for us, do we see and just have a look down and see that, what's going on? 1 Peter 1, can we see as we look down? Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Do you see what the identity is, God's elect? You were chosen by God. That is why you believe this. But what is their, what is, uh, 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 um, their experience scattered? So in their minds, they know who they are. But my goodness me, they're suffering. 
Now, what does Peter say? What does he say? He says, are you living your best life now? You're living it. Does he say that? Well, actually, let's see what he says in verse 6. Do you see what Peter says in verse 6? In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Now, please tell me, what is all this? What is he returning to, referring to? Because say you have just fled from Rome. You say, Peter, I've lost my home. We escaped with the clothes on our backs and nothing more. We've lost everything. My Christian neighbors were caught and burned. What am I meant to rejoice about? What am I meant to rejoice about? And he says, you're meant to rejoice in an inheritance, which is a fully realized and possessed gift. So they don't yet have it, but rejoice in that. This is the word that was used for the children of Israel as they were in the desert. They were waiting to possess Cana. That was their inheritance. So that's what they're looking to, this fully realized and possessed gift. So Peter is saying, you have a guaranteed and reserved future that God has already established. And it comes to you in the future. In the future. Your next life is going to be your best life because this life is, James 4 verse 14, a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes and it is full of trouble. Full of trouble while it lasts. So can you live in the light of the world to come, the life to come? That's the question. The whole culture that we're in doesn't ask us to do that, Tell us, teach us to do that, but we, we're to do it. And so Paul writes in Ephesians 1.18, can we get this into our heads? I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. It's the future. He says, can you get a grip on that, on that future inheritance, O Christian? Can you do it? Now, please say what this inheritance uh, um, is. It can never perish, spade or, or, or perish, uh, spoil or fade. It's kept in heaven for you. And can you see, have a look at verse 5. This is very interesting what it is. You see, it's a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So again, this is crucial for our survival as Christians. We've got to get the three tenses of salvation. There is the Past tense, justification, I have been saved from the penalty of sin. That is Good Friday. He died for you. You've been justified. He's saying, I'm paying for your past, present, and future sin. Sanctification, I am being saved from the power of sin. So that is the present battle to put to death the sinful nature. Such a battle. Let's help each other and pray for each other and be merciful to each other. But there is a final aspect to salvation. Do you see? Here it is. A salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. That's the future. That's what he's talking about it. So you were saved from the penalty. You are being saved from the power. You shall be glorification saved for this inheritance. So sin will not exist in that place. There will be no sin. The world to come will be a place where you're utterly delivered from the power of sin and death. Finally and completely So you will be delivered then from all decay, all sickness, all trouble, all conflict, all pain, all suffering, all grief, all sorrow, all anxiety, all tears, all disappointment, all hatred, all misunderstanding. You'll be delivered from all weakness, all failure, all confusion, all imperfection. 
and on and on and on. As we see the Tamar video, we can know that in the future there will be no more rapes. Because that's what it is. It's rape. There'll be no more rapes. There'll be no more cancer. There'll be no more funerals. There'll be no more robberies. There'll be no more broken hearts. There'll be no more wheelchairs. There'll be no more blindness. There'll be no more deafness. There'll be no more bombs, no more missiles. The Bible says there will be no more curse. Nothing impure will ever enter it. No more. We will enter into eternal experiences of pure joy, pure peace, pure holiness. And John Stott said it will be an experience of ecstasy. Now, can I tell you, those who knew Uncle John will know that he wasn't prone to outbursts of emotion. So when he says it will be an experience of ecstasy, it will be an experience of ecstasy. When death is swallowed up in victory. And please hear me, we are not, uh, uh, as a church of Jesus, offering people their best life now. That is coming. It is in the future. And in verse 3, Peter calls us to burst with him this Easter into spontaneous praise for something we do not yet possess, but will one day be ours. So please see, and I want to thank John MacArthur for this pattern here that I've got, but please see, first of all, what is the source of our inheritance? Let's see, we're going to focus now on verse 3 that we had at the start of the service, and we're going to try and get this internalized for this Easter. But what is the source of our inheritance? Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So who does this inheritance come from? Can you see it is from God and uh, it is a gift. It's a gift. He is the creator of the world. He's our father. And if he created this world, he can recreate the new creation. He can do that too. In fact, the word is kainos, a renewed creation in Revelation 21. So he who made the world will remake it, but without sin and death and pain. And it's he who enables us to obtain this inheritance. He is the source. And can you see how he is described? Have a look down. He is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Indispensable to this gift is the work of Jesus, his son. It could never be ours if it were not for Jesus. Jesus came to earth, and it's very personal. He died for you. He died for you to save you from hell through the cross for heaven. It was for you that he did it. So please come back on Good Friday to bless God, to adore him, to thank him, to exalt him for the gift of his son and through his son for the inheritance that you have. And it's interesting here, we often hear fathers praising their children, but we seldom hear children praising their fathers. I've taken funerals and I've, I've heard children say, do you know, honestly, he was so selfless, so encouraging, so devoted, and I never really thanked him. So this is a week to thank the father for his son who rode into Jerusalem for us. And it was no small thing he was going to do for us. So we praise God, the source of our inheritance Secondly, why did God give us this inheritance? And here we are. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in his great mercy. He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Well, if the source is God, what is his motive? 
Why is he doing it? In his great mercy. Now, this mercy only operates in one direction, from strong to weak, from rich to poor, from master to servant, from God to us. The word is ilios, and it refers to compassion and relief given to those whose condition has overpowered them. So we have it in Matthew 17, verses 14 and 15. When they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son. He said, he has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into fire or into water. Jesus, we are desperate. We are overwhelmed. He is burned. Look at the burns on my boy. He nearly drowned himself last week. His mother is desperate. She is overwhelmed with with worry. Please help us. This is overpowering us. That is the mercy that God comes to relieve. Or again, uh, in Mark chapter 10 with Bartimaeus. Uh, Then they came to Jericho as Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city. A blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, I'm overwhelmed by my blindness. I can't see my family. I can't work. I have to beg. I can't care for myself. I don't know where I'm going. I'm overpowered by my condition. I'm in total misery. And now when this word comes in reference to God, it speaks of a divine compassion on the misery produced by our sin. The misery produced in this world by our sin. If you want proof of that, just look at that Tamar video to see what sin produces in this world. Sin is the word used throughout the Bible to describe wrongdoing in relation to God. It's our ungrateful, disobedient, rebellious attitude to our holy God. But we then get handed over to our sin. God, it's as though he takes the handbrake on and he said, okay, if you want to go that way, see where it takes you. And it produces utter misery. And the Bible warns from Genesis 4 onwards, sin is crouching at the door and it will destroy you. And God is a God of tenderness, of loving kindness, of compassion, of sympathy, who sends his son on Good Friday so that we may be forgiven and begin to battle against our sin, which causes us to cry out, I don't do the good I want to do. No, the evil I don't want to do this, I keep on doing. Lord, help me. And so we can be justified, saved from the penalty of sin. We can be sanctified. We can, be, we can be being saved from the power of sin, and one day we'll be saved from the presence of sin. But God has compassion and mercy on us. Because he decides, as we're being overpowered by sin, that actually we are not treated as we deserve to be treated. He could just hand us over to the consequences. But he saves us. He rescues us. And so we have Ephesians 2 verse 4. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Why did he do that? Verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show us the incomparable riches of his grace. That's the inheritance. So the source of our inheritance is God. His motivation is mercy. So what is the means? Well, how is this inheritance made ours? Well, let's have a look again at our verse. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, just to be clear, we don't have this future inheritance by a natural birth. Quite the contrary. So this is not from a a, a natural birth that we have this uh, 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 inheritance. In fact, naturally, we are naturally children of wrath. 
We are naturally, the Bible says, children of the devil. We are dead in our sins and we will inherit eternal damnation. That's what natural birth gives you. But amazingly, if you're a Christian, God has caused you to be born again into a living hope, to become an heir of God. So you must become a child of God to become an heir. Inheritance is for heirs. The two words come together, isn't it? Inheritance is for heirs. And wonderfully, miraculously, supernaturally, God has caused us to be born again. And, ladies and gentlemen, this is a miracle that God does. It's a radical change that God does by his Holy Spirit. When he makes us into new men and women by implanting his spirit in the base of our hearts and thereby giving our mind, will, emotion and personality a whole new direction. It's not unlike surgery. So you know what happens? The anaesthetist comes in and plunges something into your arm and the most wonderful euphoria sweeps over you and all the nurses look beautiful and, and, and they put you on a trolley and the ceiling floats by and the doors swing open and you see the surgeon and suddenly, wake up, wake up, it's over. And within half an hour, you know they've done something. Within an hour, you wish they hadn't. In three hours, you think you're going to die and in six hours, you're worried you won't die. So all the good work has gone on underneath. You're not conscious of it until you see the evidence later. Now, that's what it means to be born again. Let me tell you what it was like with me. I mean, I I only ever prayed that that I could pass exams. I said things like, oh, God, please, may I pass this exam and I'll become a vicar. And here I am. But, but I didn't care about God. But after I was born again, I wanted to talk to Jesus like he was a friend. And before I was born again, the Bible seemed like gobbledygook. But after I was born again, it was like it had my name and address in it. And before I was born again, Jesus was a man on a cross. But after I was born again, I couldn't believe what he had done for me. And my sin which I didn't care about as long as I wasn't found out before I was born again, became ugly to me because I knew it grieved the Lord Jesus. And new birth is like that. God changes us until one day you say, Jesus really did die for me on Good Friday. He really is the son of God. I must make him the center of my life. Now, again, if you're a Christian and you've born with me, thank you. I know I've been rude. If you're not a Christian, I've been quite rude tonight. I know that. But what we'd say is, what do you have to do to be born again? What you have to do, my friend, is keep listening. So come back to Good Friday. Give the three hours. Come back. Easter Sunday, come. There are three services. The Resurrection Revolution event. Keep listening. So you keep listening, and God does the miracle. That's how it works. Please keep listening. I must close. Let's close. But how is it made possible? So what is the source of our inheritance? God. Why did God give us this inheritance? Because of his mercy. How does this inheritance made ours? We're born again into a living hope. How is it made possible? Can we see as we look down, it's Easter through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That is how it is possible. Through his resurrection. So what is the conviction about what will happen in the future based on As we talk about the new creation, what is it based on? It rests on the fact that God raised Jesus from the dead. And if God raised Jesus, he will also raise those who trust in Jesus. So that is a promise. So what we're told is we have this eternal life because Jesus conquered death for himself and for us. 
and for us. So he is like the needle and he goes through the carpet, but he pulls us behind. So it wasn't just the resurrection of Jesus the early church taught about. It was the resurrection of the dead. It was you and I, if we trusted in what happened on Good Friday. He put himself through. Uh, This is the Scrubs family. So Chad and Jada, John Randall, Charlie, Carter and Haley. And Chad is the rector of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Nashville. And he is a friend of mine. I preached there in 2019 when he hosted our conference for Christianity Explored. Last week, a gunwoman, Audrey Hale, who had been a pupil there at the school, she was 28, came into the school and shot Haley dead with five others at the school. I wrote to him and he wrote back, You're so kind to reach out, Rico. She was such a gift. We are broken-hearted, so empty and so full at the same time. I'm so proud of her. So grateful Jesus chose me to be her dad. God is good. Evil does not get to win. Thank you, brother. In the Metro, he said this. She was such a gift. We are heartbroken through tears. We trust that she is in the arms of Jesus who will raise her to life once again. You don't give someone like this a book entitled Your Best Life Now. You don't do that. But you do talk about the resurrection of Jesus and the day of reunion, when because of the resurrection, a father will one day have his daughter back in his arms. So we have a joyful expectation for the future based on true events in the past, the resurrection, which changes so much about our present. Let's pray for the Scrubs family as we close. One Thessalonians four verses thirteen and fourteen. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Father God, we pray for this family as they head towards Haley's funeral this Saturday. We pray for Chad and Jada with their hearts broken. We pray for John, Charlie and Carter. And we pray that because of the resurrection, they will know that there is a day of reunion, that they will see their sister and daughter again, that they will have her in her arms. And we pray that you would enable them to grieve, but not like those who have no hope. Amen.